agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hugs the government love. The government hugs the government love. The government Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. Joining me today is political and policy analyst Kristen Matheny. Hey, Kristen. Hey, Mike. Happy Saturday. How are you? I'm doing okay. Hanging in there. How about you? <laughs> I'm okay, too. I'm hanging in there as well. <laughs> you know, before we get started, and as, as always, we have a lot to talk about. I just have a couple of quick things I wanted to mention to everyone. First off is that I'm actually, I've actually started a new podcast called Politics Makes Me Sick. Uh, it's, uh, <laughs> the idea is sort of just to be kind of a quick summary of what, uh, what's going on and what people on the left and right are saying about it. So kind of like a one-person abbreviated politics guys but designed for people who aren't political junkies. Because I felt like, you know, I mean, most of the people who are listening to us right now, if, if you're listening to an hour plus of politics, uh, you're, you're probably pretty, you know, political junkie-ish. And I thought, what about people who want to know what's going on and want to get kind of a sense of that, but don't have the time and don't, or don't, just don't want to spend an hour plus? And so I thought, well, maybe I can try to put something together for those folks, because there are a lot of people out there like that. And so this is kind of my experiment along along those lines, and we'll see how it goes. And maybe, you know, I think Politics Guys listeners might be interested in it as well. Um, and right now, I've recorded a couple of episodes. I'm still sort of getting kind of the back-end stuff set up, and you have to get permissions and submit your podcast, all that kind of stuff, you know. But the one place right now I'm 100% positive you can get it is the show's website, which is, here's a shock, politicsmakesmesick.com. But uh, within the next few days, it, I'm hoping Apple will grant their approval, because that's, of course, the 800-pound gorilla, you know. Um, and by midweek, uh, like around Wednesday, Day the 21st, 22nd. Uh, if you can't find it wherever you you know, you usually listen to podcasts, just let me know and I will look into it. And you can, and also if you are able to find it, let me know that as well. I'll check it off my list. So that would be a big help. Uh, and again, if you need to get in touch with me about that, that's Mike at politicsguys.com. So I'm, I'm excited about this. Should be interesting. Second thing, um, I wanted to say before we get started, uh, a few words about idealism and cynicism. You know, over the last few weeks, really, and then a little bit longer, actually, I've been hearing from a number of listeners who felt kind of frustrated with some of our shows, and particularly the Mike and Jay episodes. And, and it started to feel, I think, sometimes a little bit like we're talking past each other, at, at least at times. And I've been focusing maybe more on kind of idealistic what's right arguments, whereas Jay has maybe been a little bit more inclined to focus less on that and more on what kind of the, you know, the smartest and the best Republican strategy is. And I want to say both of these things, I think, are really important because idealism without some sort of a clear strategy and realistic expectations uh, gets you nowhere. But on the other hand, strategies for, you know, winning without some kind of principled set of ideals about why your winning is better for the American people, that, that might get you somewhere, but it's probably not any place good. Uh, and as many of you may have noticed, I've been pushing Jay uh, more and more on this in our last few shows together, and things have occasionally gotten a little tense. And so this past week, he and I had a long talk about this, and you know, we agreed that from this point on, we both try to do our best to lead with our ideals, to make principled, you know, liberal or in Jay's case, or uh, conservative arguments about what the right thing to do is, and then kind of turn to the sort of gritty political realities that will make, you know, those ideal outcomes to a certain extent only ideals. But, you know, we try to get the best we can. Because I believe that our listeners deserve more than the sort of cynical punditry that you see pretty much everywhere, right? And I think it's not just Jay and myself, but all of our hosts here are, I think, fully committed to making sure that we make honest and principled arguments for the positions that we're advocating for or the positions that we're opposing. Because it's so easy, it seems to me, to kind of slip into that muck that the media wants to pull us down into and just all of that cheap cynicism. And 
you know, we want to do our best to stay above that. And we definitely appreciate hearing from you when you think that any of us or all of us are not living up to our ideals. So thank you very much. All right. Uh, with, with that, uh, just uh, just a quick reminder for, for Patreon supporters, and we've been a bunch of new ones this week, and we really appreciate it. Thank you, Dane, Fiona, Derek, Robbie, Eric, and Corey. And of course, our newest Patreon benefit is that Discord group. And that's actually been a lot of fun. Kristen, you've been jumping in on that as well a little bit, and Jay's been on there. And uh, uh, just this morning, I think, Kristen, you posted on our Dogs Rule channel, didn't you? I did. I Everybody was posting pictures of their cute doggos and I felt like I had to get in on the action. So I posted my uh, my three old men, yeah. the elder statesman of the Matheny home. <laughs> yeah, that was great. I, I, you have three. Uh, we have we have four here. And that's the uh, it's not really about dogs. I just decided that I have a political channel, a non-political channel. And it, I just thought, well, I'll make a dog's rule channel so I could post pictures about my dogs. So it's a lot of fun. It's one of the new benefits that we're offering. And I've been posting stuff throughout the throughout the weekend and on that. So uh, you might want to check it out. And if you're interested in becoming a supporter, it's Patreon com slash politics guys all right enough uh, preliminaries let's get right to it Kristen all right so uh, the first uh, story that we have today um, or rather this week I should say um, is the Amy Coney Barrett confirmation hearings which was everywhere um, I know it's funny because I talked to a lot of people who were able to watch it during the day. I was not able to watch it during the day um, <clears throat> I work um, I was kind of tuning in here and there and then kept trying to catch up at night. So I'm sure there are, there are plenty of people who watched it step by step, but uh, just to give everybody a recap in case you missed anything. Um, th this past week, the Senate confirmation hearings for Judge Amy Coney Barrett took place. It was four days of a lot of questions, commentary, answers, and a parade of witnesses. So, you know, the typical stuff we expected, I guess. Uh, while Democrats predictably went af uh, after the Supreme Court nominee for previous stances on cases involving things like health care, um, abortion, and voting rights, uh, witnesses lauded her as well-qualified and brilliant, and her responses impressed Senate Republicans. So all of that is pretty predictable. As it stands now, um, looking to the future, the Judiciary Committee will vote on her nomination on October 22nd. And the Senate's final vote to confirm her or not uh, will likely take place the following week. So this would be just about a week, maybe a little more before the election. So we're, we're under the gun here. It's a bit of a crunch. And, you know, one of the things that struck me was the last time we talked to Mike, you had mentioned that you didn't think it would, you know, change anything. And I guess everything was, was just as I had predicted and nothing changed. So you were right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> everything happened according to plan, I yeah. guess. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, I, in, in, uh, going over the hearings and the testimony, uh, a couple of things came out. Uh, I guess the, sort of the Republican view is that uh, Judge Barrett is probably the greatest judge, I guess, you know, I don't know, since Solomon or, or something like that. It always cringe, makes me cringe when the, when the term rock star is used, especially when, yeah, so, I don't you like know, it either. yeah, it's awful. <laughs> uh, it's right up there with curated. But anyway, um, and also the fact that uh, she has, uh, you might have heard, Kristen, she has seven kids. Uh, it came up occasionally. Really? I didn't yeah. know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. What, but uh, in terms of real issues, it seems to me that there are there were really, I guess, four real issues that came up. And what I saw in, in terms of substantive issues, judicial interpretation, the Affordable Care Act, Roe versus Wade and reproductive rights and, and recusal from any potential Trump election cases. That, that's what I pulled out substantively from these hearings. And I don't know if there was anything additional that you uh, you saw or if those were your kind of main things as well. No, they were. They were. I'd actually written down um, reproductive rights and Roe v. Wade. I'm just I'm looking at my notes here. And then I'd also written down the ACA. Um, and then I wrote down Trump, potential Trump election problems um, and I'd taken some other notes. So, yeah. So things like, uh, you know, the ACA, I thought was a 
was a really, I was sort of, I wa- I did want to hear how she responded to the ACA question um, because I knew that that would come up. I knew exactly who would bring it up. Again, like it was also predictable, um, yeah. but, you know, I wanted to see how she responded, if she responded. There were, I'll be honest with you, the, the I, I had it in my head that if I was in her position, which I am clearly not, I am not a judge, I am not a lawyer. Um, I'm married to one, but I'm, <laughs> I'm not a lawyer. Um, you know, I know the answer that I wanted her to give and, and, um, you know, her, I thought her response was similar to the one that I, that, that I was hoping that she would give with that. But, you know, the reproductive rights questions, I knew those would come up and, and I was also interested to see how, how she would, uh, respond to those. So, yeah, I, I guess I had some of the same expectations and, and those were kind of the larger points there were, you know, there was some personal back and forth and, you know, the witnesses didn't surprise me. Of course, they're going to bring up you know, the bar association witnesses and people who have known her personally, um, you know, it, I mean, obviously, that, again, predictable. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, in terms of, you know, judicial interpretation, you know, she clerked, she clerked for Justice Scalia and she clearly admires Justice Scalia. And she basically had come out and said it. That's kind of sort of the judge, you know, the justice that I will be. So no, no surprise there at all. Now, on, on the Affordable Care Act, though, it seems to me that the arguments are, well, I think both sides are a little off on this, at least for a lot of the reporting, because the issue here isn't necessarily what a lot of people think it is. A lot of talk has been, there's been a lot of talk about this 2017 Notre Dame Law Review article that she wrote, mm-hmm. where she criticized Chief Justice Roberts in the, in the Affordable Care Act case that well, you know, allowed it to stand in that five to four ruling. And the part we've been hearing is this bit where uh, she writes, Chief Justice Roberts pushed the Affordable Care Act beyond its plausible meaning to save the statute. And that seems pretty clear, like she's anti-Affordable Care Act. I mean, how else do you interpret it? Well, I thought, you know, I wonder how many of these people actually read the Law Review article. So I pulled it up and I actually read the article and oh, okay. yeah, yeah, I thought that would be, you know, kind of a unique sort of thing to do since yeah. no one else seemed to be Surprise. doing it. But, yeah, yeah. But here's the rest, or at least the context surrounding it. He construed the penalty imposed on those without health insurance as a tax, which permitted him to sustain the statute as a valid exercise of the taxing power. Had he treated the payment as the statute did as a penalty, he would have had to invalidate the statute as lying beyond Congress's commerce power. Now, okay, that is not. That is not the issue before the court in the case that's coming up now. The issue before the court is the issue of severability. And so there are two separate things here. And uh, when justice, I'm sorry, when judge, he will be certainly soon justice. When judge, (laughs) Judge Barrett was asked about the severability issue, she made it pretty clear that there is definitely a strong presumption in favor of keeping as much of the law as possible that Congress intended. So mm-hmm. now, if this were an instance where the uh, the tax mandate thing were being relitigated, that would be different. But of course, that was taken out of the Affordable Care Act when uh, in the Tax Cut and Tax Cut Jobs Act of 2017. So, and, and uh, other people pointed out that in uh, I think it was a mock mock trial moot court sort of thing that uh, just. Judge Barrett participated in, she actually took a position that the Affordable Care Act should stand. So I don't think that it's necessarily the case that a vote to or that Amy Coney Barrett as a justice on the Supreme Court means that the Affordable Care Act is going to be struck down. That that could happen, but I, I don't think that that's necessarily going to be the case. What, what was your what was your take on that? Yeah, so <clears throat> I agree with you. Um, I don't think the Affordable Care Act in its entirety is going anywhere, but I thought it was really interesting. I actually, again, I'm looking at my notes because every night when I went back, I, I was just like jotting things down, knowing that we were probably going to be talking about this a lot. And I actually had to look up the quote, but I thought it was really interesting. So she compared severability. I think it was uh, Senator Feinstein who asked her about it, and she compared severability to a game of Jenga. Mm-hmm. Um, did you catch that? Yeah, I did. I did. It was, you know, it was funny because I heard it and I thought, okay, I wonder where she's going with this, but I think it makes a lot of sense. So I wrote, I actually looked up her quote and I, and I wrote it down because I, I thought it was interesting. If you picture severability being like a Jenga game, it's kind of like if you pull one out, can you pull it out 
will it all stands? If you pull two out, will it all stand? Severability is designed to say, well, Congress would still want the statute to stand even with the provision gone. Or I'm sorry, would Congress still want the statute statute to stand even with the provision gone? Sorry, I've scribbled this really quickly. So, um, you know, I think it's really interesting because I think that there's some evidence to show that the goal of severability isn't just to completely knock something down. It's to preserve as much as possible. And so I think taking that stance, um, I don't know, I was thinking, is this something that would be a comfort to Democrats? You know, would they be satisfied with any answer? I think some of them were. I think some of them weren't. Um, but I thought it was interesting. And, and um, I think Feinstein then came back and said, well, that's a very, that's a, a very, I think she said, interesting definition. She said that's quite a definition. So, you know, I, th- I think it's really interesting. I think that the issue of severability essentially could save those parts of the ACA and the ACA in its entirety as Democrats want it to be preserved. Um, you know, but but yeah, the bottom line is that I don't think it's going anywhere. I actually really liked that answer. The more at first I was confused by it and the more I thought about it, the more I considered the fact that it's a it's a pretty fair approach to something like this, something as contentious as this is to remove the parts of ACA that are troublesome and to preserve ACA for the people who want it preserved. Um, You know, I just, that's what I see happening in the future. I know we've talked about the ACA, but that's, that's the way I see this going moving forward. And I I guess something that bothers me about the whole, the the position I see a lot of people on both sides taking here is that Mm -hmm. it, it sort of presupposes that the Supreme Court is just basically another avenue by which our policy aims can be accomplished or struck down or something like that. And and I think that really misconstrues what the court's all about. The the court is about, you know, uh, interpreting the Constitution or interpreting the laws. And and as a sort of a mostly non-democratic institution, uh, you know, the idea of judicial restraint, which I very much adhere to is the idea that for the most part, you you defer to the elected branches. If there's something that they will, you don't overrule that without a very good reason. You know, it's a, and so mm-hmm. I think a lot of people forget that and just think, well, the Supreme Court can either help us or hurt us. And if you view the rule of the court in that way, well, then I think that's that's problematic because the Supreme Court isn't supposed to be just another political body that's just trying to force through policy preferences. And it, it, and so that I think that's something that people on the left and the right oftentimes see. And that's uh, hugely disappointing to me. Yeah, it you know, it is to me, too. Um, she actually uh, Amy Coney, ju- I should say judge Amy Coney Barrett, um, she actually referenced uh, Justice Kagan. At least a couple of times. Um, but, you know, what's interesting is when I watch these, I, I, I paid more attention to the Kavanaugh hearing because obviously it was bigger news and much more contentious. And um, but, you know, every time we've gone through this recently with Gorsuch, um, I remember watching the Kagan confirmation uh, hearings. Um, you know, I, and, and again, this isn't something that's exclusively on the right or the left, but I think um, symptomatic of the fact that we have senators, you know, these elected officials, and a lot of them are like career elected officials. They've been in office for a long time. Um, you know, they, they, this is, this is sort of the language that they speak. They speak in bromides and policy and opinions and punditry. And, and so a lot of times when they go off on these tangents and and they start asking questions. And and again, I'm talking about both sides. When they're asking questions, I feel like there are a lot of gotchas and there's, there are a lot of requests to comment on things like policy and personal preference. And again, like you said, it's frustrating because that was never the goal of the Supreme Court. It's not the goal of the Supreme Court. And I thought that some of the criticism that she wasn't answering questions um, you know, I understand the frustration. Uh, and, and again, this has happened on the right. I witnessed this with Justice Kagan, with, uh, Justice Kagan during her hearings, because this is, was exactly what was happening. Kagan was saying, like, I can't comment on that. I, can, you know, I can't comment on that. Really, the questions that Amy Coney Barrett was saying she couldn't comment on were questions she had no business commenting on, because a lot of them were policy questions. And I liked that she invoked Justice Kagan there, um, because I think it's a reminder. Um, you know, I, I, I watched this happen during the Gorsuch hearings, where senators would start to, you know, ask questions, it's almost like they feed off of each other. And, you know, I would see people on the right trying to make a point, um, like uh, Hawley trying to make a point. 
uh, Graham trying to make a point and then Democrats were, you know, trying to make a point and grandstanding on both sides. And, and it gets really frustrating. And when you think about really at the end of the day, what SCOTUS is there for, why it was formed, they're there to look at previous decisions and to, to weigh on those. They're not there to insert policy. They're not there to change things fundamentally, politically. Um, they're there to look at the facts and weigh them accordingly. And yes, I mean, again, like we've talked about this before, but it's so frustrating when you think about how, you know, how this was designed to go and how it actually goes. And I, you know, I, I, I was getting as frustrated with Republicans as I was with Democrats, you know, when they would go on these lines of questions where they would ask these, you know, politically charged questions, and they would ask her for her opinions and her policy. Um, I just, I found it so frustrating, but I thought her decision to not answer those questions was totally appropriate. Yeah, I certainly agree with you on that. The, the one thing that, you know, in terms of answering or not answering questions that continues to disappoint me, and, and I know it just practically enrages Ken, is is uh, nominees being unwilling to talk about past cases. I get saying, well, I can't say what I would do in a future case. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when, for instance, uh, you're asked about something that's already been decided, was this rightly decided or not? That's a pretty straightforward question. And and ever since, really, kind of Judge Bork back in the 80s, they've learned, well, don't answer those questions because that could get you in trouble, except for a few. Like, it's okay to say that Brown versus Board of Education was rightly decided. You know, that's uh, uh, but 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 you get much further than that. You know, she was asked whether, you know, Griswold versus Connecticut, uh, the the decision mm-hmm. about uh, contraception being okay, uh, was that really decided? She dodged that question. And so mm-hmm. I guess it disturbed me in, in a way because if you're going to answer questions, uh, if you're going to say where you stand on certain case, past cases, you should be willing to talk about, I would say, all past cases. Either just say, you know what, I'm not going to talk about any of that. In fact, that would almost be refreshing to me. A nominee just saying, you know what, I'll talk about my kids. I'll talk about judicial philosophy, but I'm not going to talk about any past, future, or hypothetical cases. And and the thing is, is it's not the nominee's fault. That's just a smart strategy. The fault is of the senators of you know, uh, who are basically saying, well, we're not going to we're not going to force you to do that. We will vote to confirm you without you saying anything about that. And because that's the political game that they're playing. And to me, it's it's outrageous that senators would let any nominee get away with saying essentially nothing about how important past cases have been decided, if they agreed with those decisions or not. But that's what that's what the Senate majority is willing to do. And so that's how the process works. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, considering that, I I, I agree. Uh, I think that um, there's a way to frame these decisions, sort of like uh, what she did with the Affordable Care Act, the Sebelius case. Uh, there's a way to frame it and to remove policy from it. And that's something that has struck me with the last few nominees uh, hearings that we've listened to. There does seem to be this effort to, I guess, I don't, I don't want to say distract, but like to, to pull away from uh, weighing in on these highly controversial decisions. I actually understand the logic behind it because you're dealing, especially right now, you know, she's, she's essentially in the spotlight, uh, which, you know, obviously she, she was comfortable enough and confident enough to answer the questions she did answer. Um, But, you know, off the cuff, this is something that she's had to do a lot in her judicial career. And this is something that all judges, um, you know, with any experience on the bench have had to do a lot in their judicial career. Certainly they're prepared for it. Certainly they're, they're ready to answer these questions when they get to this level in their career. Um, you know, they, this is what they've been expected to do for a long time is to weigh in on these past decisions and to talk about why you know, courts ruled uh, properly or improperly and, and why. And I think I agree with you. It, it is frustrating. And I, again, I've seen nominees on both sides do it, uh, you know, where they try to avoid these controversial issues. Um, yeah. And, and, and again, like, I think there's a way to frame it um, to kind of harken back to the legal framework and to not insert your opinion. Again, this is, we call it, you know, judicial opinions, but 
most of the time they really don't insert their opinions. They're just commenting on why the decision was right or wrong. And I think there was a way to do that. And, you know, dodging it is just, is, <laughs> it's, it's become a part of these hearings. And, and certainly she did. And yeah. she did it effectively because nobody, you know, called her on it. Yeah. Like you said. That's and a good point. Uh, kind of related to that on that issue of recusal, some Democrats asked, you know, would you will you commit to recusing yourself or any uh, election cases involving President Trump? And I thought, wow, what a bizarre question that is, yeah. because, yeah. number one, I wouldn't expect any nominee to commit to recusal in, in a hypothetical case. Uh, and then I thought, well. Exactly on what grounds, unless there's some kind of personal involvement, like uh, I don't even know what it would be, but on what grounds? So, okay, because President Trump nominated her a few months before or a month or a few months before the election. Well, what what would be the cutoff then? Well, should should Justice Gorsuch and Justice Kavanaugh recuse themselves as well or had the same thought or maybe just all the Republican justices should recuse themselves or maybe all the Democratic justices, too, because there I mean, it's just it's ridiculous is what it is. And uh, maybe you can say there should be a cutoff. But that would be the sort of thing that should be legislated. And, and, you know, recusal, I just I just thought that was a ridiculous thing, especially the argument that, well, Justice, uh, Justice Barrett would feel beholden to President Trump. But that's the whole point of having lifetime tenure. Once she's in, you know, she'd say, well, I'd, so I just thought that that was just, again, ridiculous political grandstanding and discipline. And sure, President Trump has said, you know, I would rather have more justices and more of my justices on the court if that comes to that point. And yeah, I get that, right? I, I think other things being mm-hmm. equal, it may be possible that with more Republican justices, you'll you'll see a, a rulings more favorable to a Republican candidate, other things being equal. I mean, Bush versus Gore, well, we won't go into that. But I, I just think making a case that a judge should recuse him or herself uh, to that kind of hypothetical case, that's that, that I just found that just sort of ridiculous. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I'm actually glad you brought that up. Um, it was something that, uh, again, like it, it, not to repeat what you said, but it, it felt like political grandstanding. But again, it's symptomatic of the world that these senators live in. And I get it. You know, I've worked on campaigns. I get it. This is this is the lingo they speak. <laughs> you know, this is they they especially right now during a really contentious election season. Um, you know, some of these senators are in really tight races. Some of them are campaigning for their dear lives. Um, you know, Kamala Harris, Senator Kamala Harris, is the vice presidential nominee with Biden. So you know, they, these these are people. Um, you know, they they're well aware of the fact that the spotlight is on Amy Coney Barrett, but it's also on them. And that people, you know, they, they're looking for those sound bites and they're looking for those gotcha questions and they're, they're looking for those things because that's what plays in the news. And so questions like that feel like opportunities that are seized, you know, by these elected officials to get some airtime. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I find it really, really disappointing. And likewise, you know, you, you, there were plenty of, there was plenty of grandstanding going on on the right as well. And, you know, I've always said on the show that I'm, I'm probably even quicker to criticize my own side when, when I see, when I see issues, um, you know, throwing her obvious softball questions to try to make a political point. I'm looking at uh, uh, Kennedy, um, you know, it, it, it feels like grandstanding. It feels like they're trying to get in front of the cameras. They're trying to make their case. They're trying to make their point. Um, and it's just not the place to be doing that. So there, there was, I mean, I have to say it was obviously a lot more civil than the Kavanaugh hearing. Um, but you know, it, it, again, like there were a lot of disappointing moments. Um, and, and that was definitely one just, uh, you know, there were some inappropriate questions and, there was quite a bit of grandstanding and blah. <laughs> yeah, and it yeah. will all, it will all end with a uh, it will all end with a confirmation vote at some point before the election, and we all know how that's going to uh, we all know how that's going to turn out. So, but uh, we w- we will talk about it. I'm sure when it does happen a little bit more. But <laughs> this this little bit of political theater has almost played itself out. Certainly, um, yeah, yeah. Four days was more than enough. Yeah. I remember thinking that uh, uh, I woke up on Friday like, oh, <laughs> yeah, there's one less thing I have to think about. Absolutely. 
So should we move on to actually our, our next story, which I believe is also a Supreme Court story, but this is much more of a substantive thing and not political theater. Yeah. Um, so I thought, you know, it, it, it was uh, smart for you to suggest that we discuss this after the Amy Coney Barrett uh, story, because it, it has to do with SCOTUS. Uh, so earlier this week, the Supreme Court approved a request from the Trump administration to suspend a lower court order that extended the census counting schedule. So once the ruling came down, the U.S. Census Bureau made an announcement that it would accept 2020 census responses via its website through October 15th, uh, which already passed, as well as mail postmarked by that date. So you're out of luck if you haven't responded to those questions. Uh, Previously, lower courts, including the Ninth Circuit, ordered the administration to count until the end of October, and this would counterbalance delays uh, caused by COVID lockdowns. That was the, I guess, the intended reason why they extended that deadline. So, um, yeah, so this is something, um, because of all the other news that was happening this week, this was something that really got lost. And um, I'm glad you suggested that we talk about it. I, I was curious to see your see what your opinions were on this. Well, you said you were conflicted. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, in a normal year, this would have been the census would have uh, in a normal census year, this all would have been finished a lot sooner. And yep. of course, there is that December 31st deadline that's by law for the results to be transmitted to the president. And the Census Bureau has changed its tune on this. At first, they said it'd be just totally impossible for us to finish mm-hmm. before October 31st. And so not only did they ask, not only did they plan that extension, they actually, the administration, the Trump administration actually asked Congress to approve legislation that would move back that reporting deadline until April 30th. And the the House actually did pass that legislation as part of that uh, $3 trillion HEROES Act. Mm-hmm. And then they repassed it as part of the revised lower down $2.2 trillion HERO Act in, in, in late September. But the Senate hasn't taken it up yet. That's That's presumably still one of the things in that big pandemic package that Pelosi and Mnuchin are, you know, trying to work, work out essentially. And so uh, how this, how this played out, right, is that when the Census Bureau changed its tune, then they were, that was challenged in court. And then the district court, you know, granted an injunction that prevented the Census Bureau from stopping the count, even though the Census Bureau said, well, we're 99.9% of the way there. What uh, others, many, especially on the left, have pointed out is, yeah, but what is that one-tenth of a percent that you're not there? That's a population that's not randomly distributed. That's certain types of people who are harder to count, the most uh, disadvantaged people who may be most in need of government assistance and things like that. And that matters because if that distribution isn't random across the country, that's going to have disproportionate effects on things like, well, representation in Congress. Mm-hmm. It's also going to have effects on you know the trillions of dollars over time of government benefits and aid that are distributed in part based on population. So that's kind of a big deal, I would say. Yeah, um, you know, one of the most compelling arguments that I saw um, was uh, an an attorney that represented uh, a Native American tribe, um, a very isolated Native American tribe, I thought made a really powerful argument um, against this this. this approval from SCOTUS. Um, And what he was saying was basically exactly what you just said is that, you know, he represents this population. It's a small population, but it's one of many populations across the country that's extraordinarily isolated, very tough to reach. Um, A lot of them weren't even aware of the Senate. Uh, I'm sorry, the census, <laughs> more coffee, I guess I need to drink more coffee. And um, they hadn't responded yet, obviously, and they nor would they have time to respond. Um, and of course, you know, I, I think out of all of this, I mean, there are obvious political implications. And, and I, you know, I'm looking at my notes here. <laughs> I scribbled a lot of uh, notes on, on some of these stories. And, you know, there are obvious political implications. It boils down to Republicans versus Democrats. But I think there are compelling arguments to be made on, you know, from my view on the other side. And I think this is probably the most compelling um, is that there, there wasn't this opportunity. The decision came pretty quickly and there just wasn't this opportunity to reach out to those people in isolated pockets throughout yeah. the United States. Um, I actually know somebody who is a uh, physician. He's a government physician who works with a very isolated uh, group of, uh, it's a Native American tribe um, somewhere in Arizona. 
And um, it, I, I keep meaning, I, I kind of made a mental note to talk to him about this because he actually physically works with them. But, you know, what could have been done differently to reach these people? Um, but I, again, I thought that was probably the most compelling case uh, that I heard. And, and, and when it comes to granting injunctions or staying injunction, which basically mm-hmm. means lifting them, uh, the one standard that courts are supposed to consider is that standard of irreparable harm. And that's what Justice Sotomayor, who actually issued a, a written dissent to this order of the court, said that, well, what exactly is the irreparable harm that's going to be done to the government if counting continues? And it, it's sort of hard to, when you think about that, say, well, well, maybe they won't meet the deadline for reporting the results. And how how is that an irreparable harm? Because presumably they could report partial results, but... When you think about it in terms of what the intent of the census is, it is to get the most reliable, accurate count of everyone in in the country. And the idea that a more accurate count, even if it takes a month or two more, would somehow be a harm or a bad thing, I, I just find that a really hard argument to swallow. And here's where my conflict comes in, because I believe mm-hmm. that generally speaking, I believe in judicial restraint, which means that I believe that if you know, if an if an agency says, hey, we've got this, we're, you know, in this case, the Census Bureau saying the count is going to be accurate and we're good to go, then the presumption should be that they are making that argument and saying that in good faith, unless there's pretty clear evidence otherwise. But on the other hand, again, I think, well, what exactly is the harm in continuing the count under these extraordinary circumstances? And in fact, I think you can make the other case, which Justice Sotomayor did, that there's far more harm the other way, because it's not like there were census do-overs or anything like this. This sticks for the next decade. And so I find it difficult to understand the logic here from kind of a, a common good standpoint. And it, that's why it's so easy, I think, for some people to say, well, obviously, what the administration wants is for fewer people to be counted because those people who are less likely to be counted are more likely to be Democratic voters. Yeah, again, you know, I think, um, you know, not to sort of tread on the side of cynicism, but I think ultimately what a lot of us see going on here is this play that always, it always comes into focus, like very clear focus, especially during election years. And it's not necessarily just about the census, um, but it's it's this play for uh, seats, you know, house seats, um, you know, because this is something that changes all the time. Gerrymandering is a thing, and it's something that we deal with constantly. Um, I live in South Florida. I mean, it's it's <laughs> it's something that we see in the news all the time, even in non-election years. And I think what it boils down to essentially is Republicans not wanting Democrats to stack representation in a way that favors blue areas. And I think, you know, on the other side, we have Democrats not wanting Republicans to stop them from doing this or from doing the same thing. Um, and, and ultimately, I mean, we can we can sit here and we can, you know, mince words. And, and I, you know, I thought it was interesting. It was only Justice Sotomayor who who dissented on this decision, although I understand the rationale behind the decision that uh, the Ninth Circuit may have overstepped their bounds. Um, but, you know, ultimately, this is this is what we're dealing with. It is it is kind of coming down to politics. And uh, it's not surprising to, to see this kind of response, I guess, to a decision like this. It's obviously very politically charged. I mean, it's not. <laughs> if, you, if you read her 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 opinion on her dissent on this, which I did, um, but it is. You know what I mean? And we and we all know it. And again, I don't want to step on the side of cynicism, but that really is what this is all about. Yeah, I, I think you know, there's there's certainly blame to go around. For instance, I mentioned that the Democrats passed this, the Democratic House passed this legislation uh, largely along party lines and the Senate hasn't acted. But of course, you know, the, the Democrats certainly could have passed a, if if the House had passed a standalone census measure, I mm-hmm. am fairly certain that it would have been, it would have gotten through the Senate and President Trump yeah. would have been forced to either sign it or it would have been a very difficult to justify veto. And, uh, you know, I, I think that would have been the best thing to happen. So I I certainly think that it's easy to make a case that in a lot of areas, uh, cynical Republican operatives are saying, well, a lot more people who don't vote or who are marginalized, if they do vote and they are counted, that's going to be an advantage for our opposition. So, you know, let's let's 
let's focus on shrinking that electorate. I mean, there have been some Republican officials who've said as much. Uh, and that's not to say the Democrats wouldn't necessarily do that if the things if things were reversed, but things aren't reversed. And I think we can all agree that it's just a matter of general fairness that everyone who can be counted should be counted, regardless of the political consequences to either party. Yeah, you you know, you made a, a really good point about Congress probably should have seen something like this coming and probably should have acted accordingly and not just sort of shoved, uh, you know, some language about the census into that HEROES Act uh, that, that was passed because it got lost. I mean, you know, if we if we step back and we kind of put ourselves in the shoes of where we were six months ago, eight, I guess, it's, gosh, now it's like eight months ago, um, time has flown. But I mean, so much has happened. And at that at that point, um, you know, we were panicked because we didn't know what the future held. We didn't know what the election season would look like. We didn't know what our day to day lives would look like, you know. And so we were so focused on things like uh, bailing out businesses, uh, you know, short term loans, uh, mortgage relief, um, pay, you know, paycheck protection. We were so focused on these things. And some of these bigger <laughs> kind of like sweeping policy uh, issues kind of got uh, you know, pushed yeah. under the rug, so and, to speak. And, 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 you know, they always come to light in situations like this and during an election year. So yeah. you're, you're absolutely right and, about that. And, and let's be clear, both the Democratic House and the Republican Senate have been playing politics with people's yep. livelihoods and people's lives because there is no, I, I think it is, it is just unconscionable. Unconscionable. Yeah. That, that instead <laughs> yeah. of both sides trying to use you know, mega bills as leverage that either the House or the Senate could have introduced targeted measures. They would have passed easily and there would have been significant uh, you know, uh, relief for people. Not everything that everyone wanted, but but on both sides, they were saying, well, we can't do that because that's going to be a win for the other side. And that is just that is just disgusting as far as I'm going, especially when you're talking about literally people's lives. And I find that just utterly disgusting. You're saying politics makes you sick then. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. Maybe <laughs> you know, plug for your show. But, 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 but seriously, you know, I think that yeah. I, I think that that's, you know, part of the impetus. And, you know, during normal times, you can say, well, you know, the stakes are high. But during the greatest the, the greatest threat, the greatest, you know, tragedy, awful situation, whatever, greatest challenge to our system since World War II, this is the response we get. It literally does. There have been times when I have felt physical mm -hmm. reactions to this and it's just it's just sad really yeah and i and it's and it's so cliche to say that it gets worse you know every election season it gets worse but it really does yeah i mean i i know i haven't been around for too long um but you know i voted in enough presidential elections and i've been aware of it and i've been involved in a lot of campaigns and it does get worse and it's and it's yeah i mean you know there's there's vitriol and echo chambers and and you know that I, those things will always exist you have to kind of you know tune it out to some extent but it's you know if you actually stop and you listen to what's happening you know, in the halls of Congress, you know, in both the Senate, the Republican Senate and the Democratic House. I mean, again, it's it's not surprising, but it really does get worse every year. And it and I, too, have had the same reaction. There have been days in the last few months where I've just I've looked at, you know, my family and I've said no news tonight, no news, which mm -hmm. is strange for me because I'm a newsaholic, you yeah. know, and um I've just said, I just, I just can't listen. I can't listen to this because this was never the intention of, of how this was supposed to be. Um, again, like we're idealists in a lot of ways. We try not to be cynical, but it's hard not to be, um, you know, when, when you see something like this playing out. Yeah. Ugh. And, and speaking of, ugh, I, I love that, that, that kind of, that kind of is a nice lead in, I think, to our, our next story, which made me go ugh, all over the place. Yeah. Well, me too, but maybe for a different reason. Okay. So, <laughs> so yeah. So, so this week, uh, the New York Post broke a string of reports that implicated Joe Biden's son, Hunter Biden, in a series of shady dealings in Ukraine and China, um, the former of which played a role in President Trump's impeachment hearings took place earlier this year. Um, the Senate Homeland Security and Finance Committees had been investigating Hunter Biden's dealings with Burisma, um, a Ukrainian natural, ga natural gas company. But the discovery of a hard drive belonging to the younger Biden with references to a meeting between Joe Biden and Burisma officials, among other things, has reopened and revitalized 
this investigation that was already taking place. It had been closed and now it is open again. So this is this has been something that, um, you know, it broke midweek and a lot of people were calling it the October surprise. Um, but yeah, in a lot of ways, I did go, Bleh, you know, because um, yeah, I, I I, I, uh, I'd been following this Hunter Biden story for a while. Um, and again, like, you know, a lot of my counterparts on the right were really salivating over this. I find stories like this just sort of depressing. The day it broke, I looked at the Fox News page and, and you would think that it was far bigger news than the pandemic or Barrett or anything. But, you know, I, I want to start with the one thing I think we can both agree on, that if you are a responsible news organization, and you are reporting on allegations against somebody. Uh, it's kind of a basic tenet of journalism that you reach out to the person the allegations are against and you ask for comment. Would you agree? I agree with that. Yep. Yeah. And the New York Post decided not to do that. Um, and so there's that. And I think that's important to keep in mind. So I think certainly that it is at best irresponsible reporting. Uh, the second thing I want to point out is I, I'm just going to assume that even if you take this bizarre string of things, this mysterious laptop that was dropped off at a place of a strong Trump supporter and finds its way to Rudy Giuliani and OK, whatever, then, you know, there's no kind of confirmation, no third party saying is this anything but some kind of a fake scam? We don't know. But OK, let's. Put all of that aside, the incredible string of major dubiosities, that can't be a word, but I like it. I'm going to go with it. Put all that aside. Let's just assume every single thing in that is true. And that that the Burisma board member, uh, 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 Pozharsky, I think, uh, I should name like Baranowski. You think I'd be better at that. But anyway, let's assume that he did meet with uh, then Vice President Joe Biden, which the Biden camp says did not happen. The issue here is whether or not, even if you grant all that, and for the sake of argument, I'm going to, even though I think it's a string of caca, um, let, the issue is whether or not Joe Biden did anything improper as a result of that meeting. Now, mm -hmm. the argument from the right has been that Biden, uh, not Biden, I mean, it's not like Biden was president, but that's how you say it, because now it's right, it's the Biden-Obama administration. <laughs> but anyway, um, that the administration held up a $1 billion loan guarantee to Ukraine in exchange for the government removing prosecutor uh, Ashokin, who he claimed, Shokin, that he planned to investigate potential corruption at Burisma. But if you even a tiny little bit, you realize that this is the exact opposite of the truth and that Shokin was the corrupt one who needed to be removed because he was failing to investigate corruption. I mean, because these concerns about Shokin, they just weren't a Biden or an Obama thing. They were, they were things that were being said by the, the IMF, the EU, and a whole bunch of other in, international organizations. There was corruption just shot through Shokin's office. There was this case in uh, the back in the mid, I think the 2014, 15, called the Diamond Case, where a bunch of his subordinates were found with these big troves of diamonds and cash and other stuff in their Homes. I mean, this was a hugely corrupt guy. And the just the basic narrative that's being pushed just doesn't stand up to even the tiniest little bit of scrutiny. So even if you accept everything that the Post is pushing, it's still reasonable to say, well, what exactly is the story, the scandal here? Uh, the best I can come up with is Hunter Biden got a job at Burisma because he was hoping to or he got the job because Burisma was hoping to play on his political connections. And I think, well, yeah, <laughs> of course, it's not like Hunter Biden was this great hot commodity who knew a lot about energy policy, but that's not a scandal. Uh, and so I just think this is a big nothing. Great. Well, um, here's, here's the issue that, that I have. And again, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to let what you said marinate. Um, and, and I'm going to try to be, uh, I'm going to sort of remove my own biases as much as I possibly can. So the thing that's, that's been bothering me throughout all of this, because I'm not prepared to say that I think this is true. I'm not prepared to say that I think it's false or, or half somewhere in between halfway. Um, the thing that's bothered me in all of this is that we've had allegations against different people involved in government, elected officials, President Trump. And I feel like they've been 
investigated, they've been litigated, they've been questioned over and over and over again. And you mentioned the fact that you thought that the New York Post should have asked the Biden campaign or Joe Biden himself um, about this before they went to press. And I think that's a really valid point. And I agree with it 100%. I think it's journalistic responsibly, uh, you know, you it, Journal, I guess, responsible journalism to do that, to sort of ask the other side if they have a comment, if they have no comment, you publish that, that they had no comment, that they refused to comment, whatever, um, or their response. And so that was irresponsible on their part. But w the thing that's bothered me is that, um, you know, I felt that um, all of the claims against President Trump for the last four, four almost four years, um, all of the claims against people within his circle. I've said the same thing. Let's investigate. Let's investigate. Let's ask questions. Let's get to the bottom of it. Let's see. Let's see what's really going on here. Maybe there's a grain of truth to it. Maybe not. You know, we deserve to know um, because if there's corruption, if if there are issues going on within government that extend past, you know, uh, you know, uh, I guess ethical standards, we need to know. We need to know. We deserve to know. We voted for these people, and as a Republican, I wanted to know. I was not firmly in the Trump camp, reflexively, you know, saying that he did nothing wrong, and like a lot of Republicans were. But the problem is that I'm seeing this happen on the left, and it, and I find it really disturbing that. And again, we'll we'll get into the town hall maybe in our next show. But um, you know, it, during the town hall, not one question, not one question was asked about this. And this this was a story that made headlines across the country, uh, not just on the New York Post. I mean, this really caught fire. And the thing is, um, you know, if, if a story as big as this. Um, you know, that you have this publication coming forward saying we have evidence. Um, supposedly, the FBI had this had this computer access to these files and these emails. They've been corroborated, I'm not saying they're 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 it's true or false. But what I'm saying is investigate it. Ask the questions. Ask Joe Biden about this. You know, clearly he he had probably prepared an answer with his team, you know, that the Biden camp has, you know, put out statements, but I'm just wondering why they're seeing, I mean, it just, it feels so much as a Republican who's very jaded and very frustrated right now. It feels like it's just constant air cover coming from the media and coming from social media. And again, we'll, we'll get into that, but I find it really, really disturbing. If there's nothing here, if this is like a big nothing we still need to ask about it. We still need to, I, we still need to question people involved. Yeah. I mean, I just, well, I, I feel very frustrated about this but, and hmm. go ahead. Go ahead. I, I guess I don't understand. Well, I, I'm, I'm maybe I'm not understanding because I saw, I saw very prominent coverage of this in the New York times and the Washington post and other places. So I feel like they, they covered the story and they asked these questions and they came to the sort of the similar conclusion that I did, that this was a, uh, this was, a, you know, an uncorroborated story from a news organization that engaged in uh, uh, fairly shoddy practices that's not willing to have any kind of third party investigate anything. And in fact, right now, the FBI is investigating whether or not this is part of some Russian disinformation campaign. And that story has been you know, being covered as well. And so I, I don't think that this isn't being talked about on the on the left. I'm hearing this a lot on the left. And and so I don't think this is the case of the media giving cover. I think this is the case, it, it seems to me, based on all of the available evidence that uh, some very partisan organizations are trying to take, uh, trying to essentially, what seems like, create a scandal out of almost thin air, potentially with the help of Russian disinformation. And, and there's just no, they're there. And what, what are you going to do? I mean, you can't yeah, that I think it's been, you know, pretty reasonably covered on the left. I disagree. Um, you know, I think a lot of the coverage on the left has been um, just immediately and reflexively dismissive of this. And again, I, I want to reiterate, I'm not saying that this is true. Um, I don't know. I, I'm not somebody who's I'm not a journalist. I'm not somebody who's investigating this. I'm just looking at the information I have. I I do look at the New York Times. I, I have a subscription. I read the New York Times. I read The Hill. I read political. I read these publications that were, um, you know, I guess, bringing up the story and then just sort of reflexively dismissing it. And I guess, you know. Well, let me let me yeah. ask you this, Chris. Go ahead. Go ahead. If, if let's say that uh, that I 
I post a story and you know, and I say like, well, I have documents. Uh, I got them from my my buddy who happens to be a big uh, a big Biden supporter, and uh, you know, I I have documents that say that Donald Trump is a Russian spy. And I'm going to write an article about it because I happen to have a newspaper. And no, you can't see any of my documents or anything like that. But trust me, it did go through a long string of Biden supporters. And I'm a Biden supporter media organization myself. Now, I, I mean, the idea, certain, what I'm saying is certain things are much more dismissible than others when their provenance is so incredibly shaky and the news organization behind them doesn't seem to really be interested in in having uh, following any of the tenets of responsible journalism. So if you want a story to be taken seriously, you need to be willing to be open and honest and transparent with your sources and methods. And that's not what the New York Times is doing. This feels just so incredibly strongly like a complete partisan hit job. And so if if you're the New York Times and you're faced with that, it's not dismissive to say like, wow, there's not a whole lot here, and that's exactly what they've been saying, because it's, it's wrong to treat any and any and every accusation with the equal amount of gravity just because it's made. I can say any crazy thing, but that doesn't mean that without any kind of solid proof that it should be treated as, you know, as equally as something that actually has a, a, a lot of strong corroboration behind it. I guess what it boils down to here is is your definition of does it pass muster? Is there a solid enough proof? And you say absolutely not. And I say I think that there is. I, d I do think that there is something here. These emails were backed up. Um, the email addresses were backed up. They researched well, the IPs. Um, you know, I, I just can I you talk find about that a little bit. Sorry, Kristen. I just wanted to get clarification on that when you say the email addresses were backed up. Yeah, they were. So, um, and, I, and I won't even begin to pronounce his name, but the Burisma official that Hunter Biden was emailing with, his email address was verified. It was actually tracked to his domain and the IP address was researched. So there, so there, it, the thing is, there, I don't know what happened concerning Joe Biden. I don't think any of us really do. Um, but the fact that you have Hunter Biden who was communicating with Burisma officials and the IP addresses were researched, you know, these emails were essentially proven to be the correct emails for these Burisma See, officials. I, I don't believe that's the case, actually. If it is, I don't think that any independent third party has done that. Maybe some folks on the right have done that, but I don't, I don't believe that there's been any independent third party confirmation of that. And so I'm sure you. Should, I'm sure you can understand how people on the left would be. Oh, I understand. Would be skeptical of someone saying, "Well, this was verified." Who? Well, it was verified by people on the right. Uh, you know. I so I would like to see a third party verify that. And as far as oh, I know, no. there has been none. Exactly. That that's that's sort of the the I guess at the heart of my point is why shouldn't we treat this like? every other claim that's come up with, with quote unquote evidence, whether it's evidence or not, you know, I don't know. Um, it could be entirely fabricated. It might not be entirely fabricated, but the fact that, you know, we're, this is an allegation of something very, very serious, essentially like is pay it? for play. Is it? Yes. I, okay. Absolutely. Maybe I don't understand that because what exactly is allegedly going on here? What exactly is the scheme? Maybe you can explain again, Assuming that every single – I'm just going to assume that the New York Post, the paragon of journalistic integrity and all of this was absolutely 100 percent. All these emails are completely legitimate. Even if I grant all that, I'm having trouble seeing what the alleged scandal or misconduct on the part of Joe Biden is. And maybe you can explain that to me. Oh. In these emails, there was talk of Joe Biden. And again, I haven't actually read all of the emails. Obviously, I'm not the person investigating this. I'm not a journalist. But within those emails, there are references to Joe Biden, um, I guess, getting a cut of the money that Hunter Biden would get. And there were also uh, references to a meeting between Joe Biden and Burisma. And I know that the Biden campaign has said that Joe Biden never met with Burisma and that this meeting never took place. But the fact, you know, it's, it's, I guess, from my perspective, it looks like 
maybe, and I'm not saying yes or no, I'm not hoping, you know, because ultimately I think, you know, this is a guy who, who at the time that a lot of this was going on, he was vice president. It would actually break my heart just as somebody who loves open and honest democracy if something were to be going on. So I hope it didn't go on. I'm not salivating at this news and I'm not even saying it's true. It could be a total sham. But my point is that there's, I feel like there's enough there to show that it's possible that pay for play could have happened. Joe Biden had made statements after the fact, um, you know, talking about uh, government officials in Ukraine. He had a vested interest in what was going on in Ukraine. He was essentially put in charge of, of he was he was like a, acting sort of as a foreign diplomat in a lot of ways during the Obama administration. I'm not saying that that this is the case. I want to make this very clear. But what I am saying is that you know, somebody's put forth these allegations and just like every other set of allegations we've heard over the last four years, 10 years, however long, we have responsibility to investigate. And I think you're right when you say that we need to have a third party look at these emails, verify the IP addresses, because maybe it was, you know, <laughs> right wing hucksters or, or whatever or who, were, who were very Russia, whatever. But we need to we need to have a third party investigating this and and coming to some conclusions because if it's true it's really bad and, and if it, it's yeah. false it's also really bad and we should point out that right now a third well, a third party is investigating the fbi yes, is actually looking at that and so so yeah i think that's i mean i, I certainly don't disagree with you about about any of that you know and i, I guess the 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 larger point I would say is I still, uh, even if all of it's true about the, the cut and all that, well, all of those emails could be legitimate emails, even if they're not Russian plant emails. The fact that uh, that guy and I, that guy whose last name I cannot pronounce wrote those either. things in an email doesn't mean that they are necessarily true, certainly. Correct. But Correct. secondarily, again, if we look at what exactly was supposed to happen in the play pay for play, one would assume that Burisma would want intervention on the part of the United States government that would help Burisma. And if you believe that Shokin was corrupt and actually wasn't investigating organizations like Burisma, it would seem like the Obama Biden administration did exactly the opposite of what Burisma would have wanted. And so that gets sort of that that is what sort of confuses me in that sense. And I guess alternately what confuses me is why they paid Hunter Biden so much. Oh, I, um, I, that doesn't confuse me at all because they they were hoping they would get something from it. I I if I were Barista, if I were any organization, if I were any big company, were, yeah. Yeah. foreign or domestic, and I had the chance to hire the vice president's son or daughter or, or a freaking dog groomer. I don't know. I would do it in a heartbeat. <laughs> Are you kidding? Because, hey, that's a, or, you know, put him on the board. It's a drop in the bucket. But, hey, there's always that possibility that maybe I can get a little juice with someone. I think it would be almost irresponsible to not do that. So the question isn't, you know, is that, sh is that a little shady? Sure it is, of course. And, you know, I think Hunter Biden has a bit of a shady past. And maybe if he were a a better, more moral person, he would have said, you know what, I'm not going to trade on my dad's name for a job and I can't accept this. And I think that would have been the right thing for Hunter Biden to do. He didn't do the right thing there, I don't think. Okay. So, but, but that doesn't mean Burisma was in the wrong for trying to, you know, get some influence, certainly. And the question is, did Joe Biden do anything wrong? And I think it's the evidence suggests just the opposite is he he actually did something that pushed in a way that would hurt Burisma. And so I, I just don't see this as being much of an issue. But I will say that I agree with you. I'm, you know, certainly uh, serious allegations need to be investigated. And there is some, you know, uh, reputed evidence. And I'm sure the FBI is taking a very serious look at that. Yeah, I you you took the words right out of my mouth. I was going to say, just let's investigate it. Let's see. Just like everything else, you know, I, I, I hate to sound like a broken record, but, you know, I'm I'm a fan of, of trying to remain skeptical and to, you know, seeing how this plays out. It, I, I sincerely hope it's nothing.
You know, I sincerely hope that that the situation you just described is what played out that, you know, Hunter Biden, you know, maybe he's not the sharpest tool in the shed and he, you know, did this. And, you know, and, and I understand why um, I understand why he would do something like this. Who wouldn't take, you know, a cool couple million yeah. for a, a position on a board? I mean, shoot, I, you know, I'm in the wrong business. But, um, you know, I hope that this isn't the case because I think it speaks to a lot of terrible uh, terrible things going on in our government that, that I, you know, I, again, I'm an idealist. I hope these things didn't happen, but you know, if they did, I think we deserve to know. Um, and, uh, this is something I'm going to be watching. It's a, it's a, and not because I'm salivating either. (laughs) Like some people on the right, I, you know, I, um, I don't hate Joe Biden, you know, I don't hate Hunter, but I don't know them, you know, but I, you know, I do hope that, that this is that, that, uh, this, you know, purported evidence is is proven to be uh, not evidence at all and a big nothing. I hope that that's what happens. Yeah. All right. Well, you know, uh, as as we expected, Kristen, yeah. we uh, <laughs> uh, did not get to everything we had hoped to. But if you are a supporter, Patreon supporter of the show in our midweek bonus show, which I've been releasing these days on Tuesdays, just because I do the the, the election 2020 show with the students on Wednesdays. Um, we're going to be talking about, let's see, those Trump and Biden town town halls. And there are some, there were some, eh, some important things I think that came out of that. Uh, we're definitely going to talk about the one thing I know you've been really you know, talk about salivating to talk about Facebook's announcement that it's going to ban all political ads yes. after the election. I have been, I had and also, and I'm excited to do this, this is going to be, uh, Kristen, the last show that you and I do before the election. And so mm-hmm. we're going to do some election predictions as well. And that should be that should be fun. If we have time for a few other things, maybe we'll do that. But uh, that is something that anyone who is a supporter uh, has to, to look forward to. At least I think you can look forward to that. And if you're not a supporter, just go to patreon.com slash politics guys and sign up. We have other good stuff at various levels of support. And again, if you can't afford to become a supporter, but you want to get access to all that, um, I'm happy to do that. A number of you have done that. And please don't, don't feel at all, you know, reluctant to do that, just send me an email, mikeypoliticsguys.com and say, hey, I would like that bonus content, but I just can't afford to support the show right now. And I will get you all set up. It's my pleasure to do that. And also something that no matter how much or how little money you have that helps us out a lot is subscribing to the show, leaving ratings and reviews, and especially sharing episodes on social media. That makes a big difference. And if you just have a general question, comment, concern, think Kristen was way off on something or I was, let us know. It's mail at politicsguys.com. And we are also on Facebook where we post new episode posts and we're on Twitter at Politics Guys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Morano, Andre Masker, Daniel Toe, Chris Wilkerson, and Nathan Sosnowski. We'll be back with a new show next week. We hope you'll join us.